if you build to be acquired, you're building on the wrong metrics. But if you build to be profitable, a sustainable business, we like profitable businesses. I like the idea that you might have a marketing team, a sales team, a finance team, et cetera. But when I buy you, all that stuff comes internal. Welcome to The Business of Drinks, a podcast dedicated to helping beverage alcohol businesses grow and thrive. I'm Felicity Carter. And I'm Erica Ducey. This season, we're focused on drink startups. How does a brand go from idea to launch and then plot a path to success? What hurdles do brands face along the way and how can they overcome those challenges? Stay tuned as we investigate. Welcome to episode eight of the Business of Drinks. Felicity, who are we talking to today? We had a great conversation with Andrew Marinov about mergers and acquisitions in the alcohol beverage space. Now, he is the right man to be talking to because he's been involved in investing ever since he was a lad, pretty much. In 2015, he started a company called Dispact Ventures, which started out as a way of sort of funding family and friends, but it's grown into an enormous company, which now has all sorts of ventures. It's like an octopus portfolio and uh, co-investors are Amex, Amazon, MGM Grand, you name it. So Ooh, big companies, big companies, big money, which is very unusual for those of us who've been reporting on wine for years and years. <laughs> so most recently, he's been working as brand development for the spirits importer Proximo Spirits, where he works on creating value and brand development. And he also creates brands from scratch, including some that he talked to us about. And my favorite, which he didn't talk much about, was called coconut cartel which is a rum from guatemala but he's also invested overseas in a distillery in copenhagen you name it so what he doesn't know about alcohol and money isn't worth knowing. <laughs> exactly. And you know, he had so many takeaways that went beyond the mergers and acquisition space. The thing I like about Andrew is that he's kind of the real deal of not just someone who from a high level comes in as an investor and is like, do this, do this, do this. He's built brands from the ground level. And his most recent brand that he's been focusing on for his own personal investment is this passion fruit liqueur called Chinola. It was very cool to hear about essentially in the marketing arena right now, what is working, what isn't working. And, you know, how do you create organic growth that is going to set you up for long-term success? I mean, along with those investment advice that he gave our founder listeners and everyone who's listening in the industry who works in different parts of it, I think there's kind of something for everyone. It really runs the gamut from raising money to how to spend marketing dollars effectively to how to build an audience, etc. It was a pretty well-rounded interview, and I think people are really going to enjoy it. I wanted to give him my money to invest. <laughs> <laughs> so all we can do is just tell people to listen. Great. So let's give it a listen. Let's go. And now a word from our sponsor, Excel Pay. At the Business of Drinks, we talk about building successful brands, but there's one crucial element that many overlook, the e-commerce experience. It's true. I've landed on so many terrible BevAlk sites with broken links and 20-step checkouts. And don't forget about alcohol sales compliance. 
Navigating the three-tier system can be daunting, but it's essential to ensure your operations run smoothly and are legally compliant. Enter ExcelPay. From a one-tap compliant checkout to comprehensive sales data, ExcelPay has you covered and can make your existing site a storefront. Visit ExcelPay.io forward slash BOD to get an exclusive 10% off your account. That's A-C-C-E-L-P-A-Y dot I-O forward slash B-O-D. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you guys. Erica, Felicity, appreciate you having me today, and I'm looking forward to speaking. Awesome. Right, let's talk about it. I know. So where we should start off today is we've been following Christy Frank and her brand, Hamlet Hound and RTD, all season long. And what we've been talking about with her and with others is the path towards finding growth and success as a startup brand in the drinks industry. And one of the paths we haven't yet discussed is mergers and acquisitions. So we wanted to start off today talking with you about the M&A space. And and maybe you could start off telling us how you got involved in the space. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely an interesting space to be in because mergers acquisitions versus venture capital, although different, all kind of blend in together. And what I realized from an early stage is in order to know about a brand, you have to understand the fundamentals of that brand, but really to be in everyone's shoes. And so from a young age, I was working in bars, restaurants, kitchens, front of house, back of house, on the event side, the marketing side, and really to understand the foundation of how to first know a brand before you can invest behind the brand. And when I got into college, what I realized is all I knew was food and beverage. And so I really started to pivot outside of that into the technology space. And how do you invest in technology in a space you know nothing about with very small funds? You have to kind of divest and understand core competencies of, I might not have the skill set of money, but what I do have is marketing and finance and e-com. And so we started to really kind of dive into sectors we did not know to understand the fundamentals of M&A before I went to the food and beverage space with Jose Cuervo. And what really the first starting plate was, it wasn't just how to build and grow a brand, but how to go acquire a brand. And that really was done at Proximo Spirits. So can you give us an overview of the current state of the beverage alcohol market? We've been watching on the podcast as consumption declines, money declines. What's it looking like out there right now? Yeah, I think that everyone was locked inside their houses and obviously consumption went up because there was no one there to judge you. So having a cocktail, you know, 10 and 11 o'clock in the morning would became an industry standard. What really happened is the pivot to the off-premise and so retail because everyone's entertaining at home. And so you saw a little mixed messaging in terms of, oh my God, on-premise is down because everything was closed, off-premise is up. The current beverage landscape isn't that things are going down, it's that there are a lot of new brands out there. So there's a lot more saturation. So it's not like Jack Daniels lost giant market share, it's that 100 new whiskeys came out at that same time. So the overall market is looking pretty straight line, but certain big brands are getting their lunch eating because there's 100 new small brands going after them. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's interesting. So move over to the money situation. Now that interest rates have gone up and there's a lot less money around, how's that impacting the market? Yeah, I think that the issue beforehand was people would raise money and they were fundraising companies. 50% of their time was spent on fundraising. What happens when you get your funds? You go spend them for the next six months. And I think there was some irresponsible spending out there, less controls, because people always thought in a year and a half from now, I'll go raise the next Series A, then I'll raise the Series B. And I think when your focus is on a fundraising side, there's no way you can spend responsibly. 
versus a lot of my companies, if we raise money, the idea is how do we get to profitability? Because it has been a brand's world the last five, seven years where brands can expect really unrealistic valuations because that's the market trend. And right now, being in the venture side, I prefer to hold my cash for six to nine months, find out who the real winner was at the end of it. And now I don't have to be at their mercy in, in terms because it's less competitive on that side. That's really interesting. You know, I was talking to a founder of a canned wine company yesterday, and she was saying that raising the couple million dollars that she's been raising in her most recent round was harder than ever because the due diligence process was about three times as challenging as it had been in a prior round. So it seems like really the tables have turned in the past year where previously it was a founder's marketplace where like, hey, we're a founder, we're doing really cool stuff, jump on board, don't miss the train. Whereas now it's shifted and it's like the investor's marketplace and the investor's like, hey, I've got the capital, you need the capital. And I can be really conservative here because I'm not sure how things are going to shake out. Is that kind of what you're seeing? That is exactly what I'm seeing. And it's interesting because I've been on both sides of the table. So I've been on the supplier side where I'm investing behind companies and I've been on the brand side. I raise capital for a living and the last 18 months has been the most difficult raising of funds I think I've ever faced in the last 12 years of doing this. I think you just hit the nail on the head. It's that if I have the money and I have a due diligence process and there are 15 different brands, they're kind of at my mercy and it's not the best position to be in. But at the same time, they were kicking our ass for five, seven years. They were doing valuations, 15 times top line revenue, which is unrealistic. And I think the issue that people did is they raised it to high valuations and that happened what we call a down round. And there's nothing more detrimental to a company than the down round. And our company's ethos was, do you want to own 80% of something good or 30% of something brilliant? And so I am always willing to lower our valuations because I believe in strategic capital and not just plain capital. And strategic capital comes with smart people and smart people know how to value companies. And I think that's what the landscape has shifted to. So it, your preference is 30% of something brilliant rather than 80% of something good. Yeah, I think people look at the amount of equity they have. They like to look at their cap table and say, I own X percentage of this company. But if you're not willing to give away part of your company to someone that's coming to invest, you're probably not going to go that far. And so what we've started to realize is people get very tied up in percentages versus the actual worth of the company. But when you start to look at the worth of the company, if a company is worth 20 million and you own 80 of it, or if it worth 100 million and you own 30 of it, you know, where's the off trade? And I think founders are really starting to understand that messaging now. So tell me, how is it that you value companies? How do you come to evaluation? I don't think there's any mathematical science to value a company. I think it's who is the buyer at the time? Because a whiskey company is worth more to Brown Foreman, a tequila company is worth more to Jose Cuervo. It's less about the value of the company and more about the synergies and efficiencies they bring to you. Because you'll see companies trade at 12x versus 20x, Publicly traded companies will value something different than privately traded companies. So there are several cases when it comes to wine spirit specifically. You can do a case multiple, which means for every thousand cases, you say hey, each case is worth $1,000, $2,000, $3,000. That is a more generic way of doing it. You can multiply off top line revenue. And I think it's funny because my dad makes fun of me all the time. He's like, back in my day, if you want to value a company, you look at the money they brought home to the bank and you'd multiply that. He's like, how do your companies lose millions of dollars a year? They're worth 100x off top line revenue. And, and I think it's that when we sell something in, if it's a technology platform and the company we're selling to needs that sector technology and doesn't want to build it out, that's one thing. If you have a user base, it's another thing. So it's not really about the valuation of a company. It's what it's going to do for the company that's buying it. So give me some advice. 
So let's say I'm a small company like Hamlet Hound. I now at this point have, you know, 50 or 60 placements in off-premise and on-premise accounts, and I'm starting to scale. I've gone through a couple of successful rounds of my product, have sold through, and now I'm looking to scale. What do you recommend for a company like this in terms of looking for capital and finding capital in today's market? I think it comes down to several key points is in that distribution, was it done organically? Was it sold in the right way? Was it discounted? And if not, once you get through there, it's, is there a cash flow positivity? I really tell my founders in the early stages, have two to three flavors max because you need working capital. And then you really go through the friends and family. And it's not about raising even numbers. When someone says, I need a million bucks, I tell me, divide it up and tell me how you're going to spend it. So I think the first part is, here's the use of funds. Here's exactly what we plan to do. And I think that if you skew more than 40% going to marketing, you're probably doing it the wrong way. I do think with startup brands, liquid to lips is the most important thing. But I think education, education is something that people miss. It's the most expensive thing to do. But when done correctly, your consumers will follow. And I think building a cult following and showing the real data room is what's going to lead you to success and investment. Can you tease out the idea of education a bit more? How does education happen? Yeah, I think trade advocacy and education kind of go hand in hand. And really in the spirit space, if there are 100 whiskeys out there, who's the best storyteller? People want a genuine story. They want to know that you paid fair wages to the farmers growing the corn. I think one of the misconceptions is people forget almost all spirits, wine, beer, they start on a farm. So if you can start to really hone in on the ingredients and what differentiates you, I think that's a key storytelling metric. But it's almost the Wikipedia model. Listen, 1% write Wikipedia, 9% edit it, 90% of the people read it, and it's gospel. That, that's it. That is the word of mouth. And I think once you can start to own that, it's key. The second biggest metric is, listen, I love consumers, but trade is very important. And Erica, this will go back to your question. How do you get investment? A consumer at home probably makes, what, 8, 10, 20 cocktails if they drink heavily a week. A bartender and a trade person, a person in the liquor store, you know, they make 5,000 drinks a week, 6,000 drinks a week. They sell thousands of bottles of liquor. So I know winning the consumer is fun. It's sexy. It's the cool thing to do. I'm always a big advocate of educating trade making them brand advocates for us, build that cult following, and they go tell my story for me. And to me, that's the definition of education. Okay. Can you talk us through some of the brands that you've acquired and why? Yeah. And it's funny because, you know, obviously working for Proximo Spirits, the acquisition level is different. You know, they have a very large fund and we can go buy brands for find common efficiencies. When you look at it from a supplier side, it's, I'm missing an Irish whiskey, so let's go buy one. Oh, I need a celebrity tequila, let's go build one. When it comes to Dispack Ventures, which is my fun, it operates in a very different level because I don't have those efficiencies. What we've really done is how do I find that niche? And I think Chinola is the definition of that niche. When we went to start this brand eight and a half, nine years ago, it was liquid in a bottle, it's separated. I remember I brought it to the CEO of a major supplier, which I won't call him out on this, and he said, what's this lava lamp doing on my desk? Because it separated that much. <laughs> and Now, this is the passion fruit liqueur. This is the passion fruit liqueur chinola. And it's been my baby for the last eight and a half, nine years. And when we started to look at it, it wasn't about building the liqueur. It wasn't about being a passion fruit liqueur. It was about making a fresh fruit liqueur. Because liqueurs have been around forever, but you've seen the quality kind of go down over the last 20, 30 years, become synthetic and artificial. And so when we really look to go build this and acquire it, it was, how do I stay true to that? How do I not put additives, not preservatives, no coloring, no flavoring? And after 2,000 plus test batches, we almost failed at that. I almost said, screw it, let's put the flavoring, let's put the coloring in, let's get to market. But we wanted to put something citrus forward. And when you look at it, and the reason Chanel is so important is, 
we were building a niche on trade because I was tired of using purees. It took manual labor. It was not cost efficient. It took refrigeration space, which as Erica knows, we don't have that in New York City. There is no refrigeration space. And if it's going to go bad, how do you change that? And I think that we did that with a lot of brands. It was find the niche in the market that we can be competitive, but not so niche that I have to build the whole foundation, but maybe something that I can do better than someone else. So is Chinola the first in a line of other flavors that you think you'll spin out or is that going to stand alone? So I don't want to be hypocritical to myself because I tell people, build the foundation, one skew, one size. And with Chinola, we did it. We were in two states, then six states. And at COVID happened, we were 95% on premise, which means in two weeks, I lost 9% of our business. And it was doomsday. And sure, we pitied ourselves for a few weeks, sat there feeling bad. And we realized maybe we can win the off-premise. Maybe we can go into retail. Maybe a consumer would want to have us at home. And when we started to realize that, we picked up you know several thousand nine-liter cases in the course of three months, we became a recognized brand. We went from six states to 31 now. We're in 13 countries. We'll sell over 35,000 nine-liter cases of a single SKU. And that's important because I believe brands are recognized as real brands when they break the 30,000 nine-liter case mark. And that is when you can enter one more flavor into the market, two more flavors. What we want to avoid being is a flavor house. But I also want to be avoid being called a passion fruit liqueur company because we're a fresh fruit liqueur company. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's really interesting. So Chinola is the perfect test case for what we are talking about on this podcast, which is launching a brand first, obviously, growing a brand, scaling a brand. And I'm so curious to know, you know, you did this pivot from on-premise almost entirely to off-premise. How did you find success in the off-premise? What were the specific strategies that you used to gain traction? We created a gateway drink is what I really like to call it. People were entertained at home, but they weren't the best mixologists. But you have to start somewhere. What we realized is we have a drink called the Chismosa. It's our plan of Mosa. It means people that gossip in Spanish, and we dug into it. We had a focus. And one of my advisors says, Andrew, you're all over the place. You need to focus on one drink, get people started. So we found sparkling wine companies that were in the liquor store that weren't moving. And we said, listen, pour three parts sparkling wine, one part chinola. You have this Chismosa drink. Here's the fruit garnish, and you can entertain at home. What it led people to do is get out of their comfort zone and to make a cocktail. Although it was two steps, it became almost nature to them. And then we said, here's a third step. Take whipped cream canister, fill it with these ingredients, infuse pineapple into it, and put a foam on top of this. And now all of a sudden, you're a VIP host. <laughs> Once they got into that sector of it, well, here's how you make a margarita. And here's how you make a shandy. The best part about Chinola, where we found the niches, we play with everyone. I can interchange tequila, vodka, gin. We work with beer. And I go to bars and always say, try to stump me. Give me three ingredients I can't make a drink with. I've only been stumped once in five years because someone handed me grappa. <laughs> I cannot do a grappa cocktail infused with canned meal that tastes delicious. And I think that was the real pivotal moment for us is how do you make at-home entertainment easier and build brand recognition? And that's what we did during COVID. I just want to interject and say, okay, so you've got a brand which is on the retail shelf, but how did you end up speaking to consumers? Did they sign up for a newsletter? How did you actually convince them to make these things? It's funny. Marketing was never my forte. And the only marketing I know is liquid to lips. And we did that. We invested heavily behind liquid to lips, which means in-store tastings. We created our social media platform, which again, we did in-house. And we start to educate consumers by Here's how a cocktail is made. And here's why this drink is more important than that one. The idea of sustainability is really key to my fund. Our brands need to make a positive impact in their home culture, which made it easy for us to tell a genuine story that we could then back up. And we did it in stores. 
We did the liquid to lips, and when a store told me we could not do wet tastings, which is when they actually get to sample it, we said, fine. Two weeks later, we show up with a spray bottle and a piece of paper, and we sprayed chanola onto it and said, smell this, because you get the citrus note. And so we got very creative, very handsy. And the best part is my founders, my partners, my COO, we come from major suppliers. So we've learned from them. We've spent their money on how to do it. And we've taken all of our lessons and brought it onto this brand. Okay, so this is a brand that it sounds like you built from the ground up. What about acquiring brands? What makes you interested in acquiring a brand? Acquiring a brand really depends on who I'm buying it for. And I advise a lot of different companies in a lot of different spaces. What's interesting is, say I'm a big tequila producer. I'm Proximo and Cuervo. And I have Jose Cuervo, traditional, gold, etc. So I already have the playing field. Then you add 1800 to it. And now you have a little bit of a higher price point, a little bit of a different space. Then you create Dobell. Now I have my premium version. I have Family Reserva. What am I missing? It could be a celebrity-driven brand. I think it's finding gaps in your portfolio that you want to fill. So if you're a major liquor supplier, but you're missing a gin, you want to have your sales team come with a full book. So at one point, you want to build the team. But the second time, you want to arm the team. You want to make sure that when they're going into a bar and they're going to take over the back bar and do the right spends, they have a gin, a vodka, tequila, whiskey. And so for me, it's really filling the voids of our portfolio that need to stay competitive. I think that there's a lot of brands out there, perhaps, that are interested in eventually being acquired and hopefully being acquired at a very high multiple. Very high. And so, you know, we listen to some of your prior talks and you had talked about that there's this, you know, idea of, hey, you need to get your company to the point where it's producing dividend checks rather than looking to ramp up and scale and then like do a quick exit. Can you talk us through the the pros and cons of, of both of those strategies? Yeah, absolutely. In the last 10 years, I finally had 10 people now more because they listen to my podcasts and they now know my biggest pet peeve is when you come into a room and I ask you what your goals are and you say to be acquired in three to five years because there's this connotation that brands think this is a three to five year journey, but they don't really understand what I'm looking to buy. I am not looking to buy distribution, points of distribution, which we call pods in the street. I'm looking to buy sell through. I don't want to look at your shipments. I want to look at your depletions because I can go ship products around the world tomorrow does it leave the warehouse? So I think there's this idea that everyone says, I need to be at 100,000 cases. Why do you need to be there? I need to be doing this top line revenue. Because as a big supplier, if you hit your peak and your pinnacle, and I know the market size is 100,000 cases and you're at 90, where's my room for growth? So I do think brands need to understand organic growth, a path of profitability. And when I talk about dividend checks, if you build to be acquired, you're building on the wrong metrics. But if you build to be profitable, a stable business, we like profitable businesses. I like the idea that you might have a marketing team, a sales team, a finance team, et cetera. But when I buy you, all that stuff comes internal. So your overhead that was $3 million goes down to 500000 And that $2.5 million in savings might hit my bottom line as positive revenue. And I think when brands start to realize it's about building a brand that has growth and has legs and can be sustainable and profitable, that to me is a brand that's worth being acquired. And when you are uh, looking at acquiring a brand, Tell me about where the growth stage of most of these brands are. Are they sort of like 10 years down the road or a certain case count? Or what size does a brand need to be for it to be an interesting acquisition target? I think in the industry, brands are considered real brands after they break 30,000 nine liter cases. So those are 12 bottle cases. 
I think the sweet spot for brands to really start to do what we call a JV or a joint venture deal, where a big supplier will pay attention, is that thirty to 50,000 nine liter case mark. And anything above that, you're, you're a recognized brand. I think a lot of brands are looking at it and they're not getting to the right threshold or they don't know how to, because making your first million dollars in this space is the hardest. Making the $10 million mark is close to impossible for most brands. You can see that in the 90s, there were several hundred breweries in the US. In the last 10 years, we have 6,000 breweries, but a lot of them are shutting down. Same with distilleries because they tried to overexpand and they thought, oh, I'm going to make a whiskey and I'm going to win this one market. Mm. So brands really become interesting if they're hitting 30 to 50,000 nine liter cases and they're doing so intelligently without spending what we call AMP or marketing dollars several hundred dollars a case. And I think that's really important. The second biggest thing is I can be the preferred tequila in every bar if I give it away, if I give it at cost. And I think a lot of people go into a bar and they say, oh my God, this brand is everywhere. It's probably because they discounted pretty heavily. If you're in every retail store, you might have discounted too much. There's one key note in our industry. You can always go down in price. It's hard to go up in price. And I think when brands start to realize their value and Chinola is a great example again. We don't like to go below our price. I don't like to give away free product. What I'd like to do is do the right tasting events and do the right promotions and show the right cocktails and stability in it. And I think when brands start to recognize that as organic is more important than extreme growth, uh, they start to realize they're, they're more valuable than they think. Okay, so you've just touched a nerve because I'm a tequila producer who's been wanting to get into the US market. How do I get into the US market without lots of discounting considering that the market is saturated with it? What do I need to do? What USP can I develop? Yeah, I, well, I think there's several key things. Everyone wants to go in California, Florida, and New York. They are the most expensive markets to play in. I think if brands really want to start to win the US market, go visit Atlanta, Georgia, Omaha, Nebraska, the sleeper Denver. Denver, Colorado, you create a tequila that has the right genuine story and you go tell it there and in Austin, you're going to have a win on your hands. So I'm not saying don't launch California, Florida, New York. Choose one to be in the eyes of the consumer, but choose a second, third tier market because people don't go visit them. And you as a founder should be out there doing the hand selling. I was delivering cases last week of Chinola. I have 22 companies in my portfolio and I still hand deliver cases if a account calls me and says they're out. And because of that, they'll be consumers and lovers of it for life. I do the samplings, do the tastings, and be ready to get your hands dirty. And again, don't sleep on the states because they're not cool and sexy. Show them a little love and you're going to go a lot further. Okay, so now that I've taken your advice and built my tequila in Denver and Georgia, and now I want to take it national and come and speak to you, what expectations should I have now that the days of easy money are over and the, the market is full of brands? What's my pathway to success and how long and slow is it going to be? I think there's a misconception that distributors build brands here in the U.S. And my family hates me for saying this because we're a massive distributor in the U.S. I don't choose necessarily the best option. I choose the least shitty option. There's no chance one distributor fits across the entire U.S. and they're the best in every state. I think with brands have to be very careful. If you are truly building for acquisition, you do not want 30 different distributors. Because when you get acquired, they're going to ship to their distribution footprint. And normally brands sign contracts that say you have to spend three to five times gross profit to get out of this contract. So if you are going to build, what are the key markets? And I really cannot stress this enough. Where are people drinking tequila? And in New York, if you have to spend 50 grand, I bet you in Missouri, you have to spend $3,000 and do a market visit. So if I'm you, I'm looking at the right distributor with the right focus that gets behind it. But I am not going to the assumption that they're going to build a brand. So if you're going to launch a market, don't launch it to be there. Do it because you have a full game plan on how to build it. And I think that is the most important thing I can stress is 
when you go there, I don't ask a distributor for my first 50 accounts. I personally fly there and get it myself because there's nothing like a salesperson waking up the next day with a paycheck for commission or something they didn't do. That's going to make them want to get out of bed and sell the next day. Let's talk a little bit more about Chinola. So this is a bit of an unusual product. Like, I guess if I were thinking like, okay, I'm going to start a brand right now, I'd be like, all right, is there any white space in, I don't know, some type of tequila RTD or whatever it might be? What was it about the concept of fresh fruit liqueur that really made you sit up and take notice and think like, this is where I want to invest some serious time and energy. Yeah, I do a lot of global travel. And I think the US is one of the last people to pick up on passion fruit. In Latin America, they call it Miracuya. It's called Liliko in Hawaii. It's all over Australia. But really where it got to me was when I was in Copenhagen. I was in Copenhagen meeting with a ton of chefs and I saw passion fruit everywhere. And the one thing I didn't see was in the U.S. where we're a little further behind. And like I said, my joke was Tropicana was trying to ban all the passion fruits. They want to compete with oranges. And we really started to look at it. And the idea was all these liqueurs and cordials were very strong. If you use a quarter ounce of them, it overpowered the drink. So how do you create something that is citrus forward and sugar back? Because every bar has simple syrup. Simple syrup is very cheap. 50% sugar, 50% water. But citrus goes bad quickly. It's very expensive. And what we realized, if we really want to create what we call velocity, which is high volume accounts, instead of using a quarter ounce, is there anything we could make that use a full ounce, an ounce and a half? Where Chinola really was the game changer and the winner for us is if the national average liqueur pour is 0.25 to 0.5 ounces, and we're at 0.75 to 1.5 ounces, it means we outsell people three to six times. So the most impressive part about Chinola isn't that we're gonna do 30,000 plus nine year cases, is that we're gonna do it in a very small account basis. Why that's important for a supplier and what you ask me is, I don't care as much about visibility in a lot of accounts, I care about it in the right accounts. When I launch a state to my distributor and they ask how many points of distribution do you want? I say, I don't want a mass amount of points of distribution, I want the right ones. Go get me 30 menu placements, but do not stick a bottle on the back bar. Because unfortunately, as of right now, no one's going into a bar saying, what's the best passion fruit liqueur do you have? They're saying, what's the best cocktail do you have? And we won the cocktail culture. It's interesting because I have a bottle of Chinola and it has so many uses, which I find delightful. A lot of evenings I don't want to drink. And so I'll have a tall soda water with an ounce of Chinola and it's essentially negligible ABV, but it feels like a special cocktail. So I think there's that use, the low, no ABV side, but then there's also the essentially let's make a simpler way for a bartender to make a passion fruit margarita or whatever, because if they really don't have to add much additional citrus and they can just have two ingredients or just a touch of citrus or just a garnish or something, you're essentially filling a niche by simplifying their cocktail creation process. So that seems really smart as well. Yeah. I mean, are you now on the hunt for other fruits that give you that same citrus, lower sugar viscosity, or is passion fruit the only one that you know of? What's great about passion fruit is it has a high bricks content. So it's got the right sugar content, but the pH levels are really key. It is very acidic. It made it easier to create the shelf stability. But what was really key about it is we learned how to deal with ingredients without putting additives and preservatives into them, as I mentioned. So when we looked at passion fruit, we found the processes, and now I think we can adapt it to other flavors. And I think that's what we're doing. We're really trying the R&D levels out of what other fruits can work with this. We actually put passion fruit into our bottle. 
we're the first ones to ever do that. I think what's really key about that is we can call ourselves a vine to bottle product. The only people in the world that grow their own fruits for their liquor or their wines is a winery. Breweries are trying to grow their own hops, but they can't do it at scale. Very few spirit companies, maybe in Tasmania, will grow their own grains to go make whiskey, but very few people do it. I think that was really important to us. So now that we're looking at that, the question is, do we launch a new skew, a new flavor, or do we stay with our core competency? And if I don't launch the flavor, what's the best trick in our back pocket is I can go to a supplier, do a joint venture and say, hey, I have a new flavor, you guys do launch it, it will be your win, and we're going to sell it into you, but we want the value of it. Interesting. You mentioned Copenhagen, and you actually ended up investing in the distillery. So is that the source of Chinola, or tell me about the investment and what made you decide to invest? Yeah, so Chinola is made in the Dominican Republic, and funny enough, Chinola actually means passion fruit in the Dominican Republic and nowhere else. Maracuya, Lilicuya, Parcha would be the names it's considered, and we wanted to do something that was key. Uh, that was local, sustainable, and we used Dominican Republic as our home. And what was really important about it wasn't just building the liquor brand there, but giving back to the local community. Recently, we've rebuilt the road leading up to the farm. We've given power, water. We're now trying to bring Wi-Fi to the local area. And the idea is that if you build the local community around you and build sustainably in the right way and pay the fair wages, you're going to build an ecosystem. What we first did when we went to the Dominican Republic is said, we're going to become passion fruit farmers. And there's nothing like three Americans going to the DR to take away farming jobs from the local community. It's a terrible idea. So instead, what we did is we created the genetics of passion fruit that we wanted to use in our product, and we gave it to the local farmers. And then we found other farmers that were doing it better than us. And we started to buy from them. And because we're a premium product, we can pay a higher price to create an ecosystem for the local farming community. And you know, Dispact was built on the foundation of disruption and innovation, but impact investing. So all the brands that I do, and you'll see the common thread here, is we start from phase one all the way to the end, and we're paying the fair wages, we're building it the correct way, and we're using products that are sustainable, that are grown correctly, and that don't monocrop land. It's about crop rotation. It's about how you keep the soil ready for the next five, 10 years. And when people ask, what's your vision for Chinola? When are you going to sell? I say, guys, this could be a legacy brand. I might have this the rest of my life. And that allows me to build. And that's why the big suppliers are coming to us right now to try to acquire us because we don't want to sell. And it's a really good position to be in. Yeah. And tell me a little bit about getting involved with Dispact. So let's say I'm the small brand and I'm interested in working with you in some capacity. What types of brands or companies are you looking for right now? What types of holes are you looking to fill? Yeah. When we first started Dispact, and you know, I used the money from the technology sector that I was in when I sold out, and we were looking at how do we build a platform? How do we get certain category leaders? Coconut Cartel, we filled the rum void. Empirical Spirits, we filled the chef and the industry void. We were in all these amazing cocktail bars. That was really key. When we looked at seven rooms, it's how do we control all the restaurants kind of around the world. And so during COVID, what we realized is, all right, it's doomsday. Everyone is drinking at home. We start to really play in the RTD space and we start to fill that void. And once we went with the long drink, which is now the number four selling RTD in the US with amazing progress and volume, okay, now how do we go to a more organic and natural flavor? So we looked at Zuzu. How do we can a margarita? We looked at Sip Margs. And so we start to build the foundation that way I think today what I really don't look at is I don't want to build another vodka brand, another gin, a whiskey brand, not because I don't love them. 
because they're very competitive. And I now know from my learnings at Jose Cuervo, if I'm going to go try to start an Irish whiskey, I know what they spend to compete against it. I could never do that. But can I do a flavored whiskey that makes more sense? And I think the user case, screwball whiskey. If 10 years ago you told me a peanut butter whiskey was going to go sell for several hundred million dollars and really be built in five states, I would have said you're crazy. But at the same time, five years ago, if you told me I was going to be selling passion fruit liqueur as my main hobby, I'd also say you're crazy. So I think we've, we've learned to pivot. And the point is differentiation. And I don't want to go head to head with a tequila. But if you find a new way of doing tequila or a new RTD that's a premium variation of it, it's something that we might be interested in. So tell me, we've spoken to some people on the podcast who've said, don't stray too much from the middle. Innovation is important. But if you go to the extreme of innovation, you're limiting your market. With Chinola, it sounds like you found something that was extremely innovative, but it fulfills a definite need that's already in the market. I believe that you need to keep the lights on in your company. So if you want to be a whiskey maker, you need to start making gin and vodka for other people first because you can age whiskey, but that's a four-year, six-year gamble and you need a revenue stream in. My sister has a distillery called Matchbook Distilling in Greenport, Long Island, and I love it because she makes the funkiest, weirdest, and coolest products I think I've ever tasted. And I say, for every nine of those you make, do one that's profitable because the only way you're going to keep your lights on is by doing something for everyone else. And so I think when we look at the company and when we look at Chinola specifically, we already built the ones that were for the masses. How do we build one for us? And we just found a way that the trade fell in love with it really quickly. And then consumers, so it was a win. But I don't believe in straying too far off the path unless you know how the path was built. Mm -hmm. And kind of what I'm seeing with a lot of brands is like the riches in the niches sort of things, like just looking for those like little toeholds where you can really get in and then hopefully kind of like change behavior or find a way to, you gave the example of creating a new cocktail opportunity uh, with the riff on the mimosa. That type of thing seems to be gaining a lot of traction. But I do want to circle back quickly for for people who are listening, give us any other tips on the marketing front. I know so many people out there, so many founders are really struggling with this. How do we set a good marketing spend and how do we actually get some ROI from it? What are you seeing work these days? Yeah, I think a lot of people are tied up in social media and social media is great, but it's not tangible. I am a very tangible person. So if I have the idea of investing $100,000 behind an agency or for that same fee, doing 10,000 tastings in retail stores, I'm doing the tastings all day long. I believe liquid to lips and tangible activations are very crucial. And I think one of the big things is, do you want to build the party or do you want to be at the party? And it's a really key thing. People always ask me what that means. I think a lot of people are building brands because they want to be at Coachella and say, I sponsored this. I want to build Coachella. I want to be there and be part of it. Do I want to attend? No, I want to be in bed by 9 p.m. so I can wake up at 4 a.m. and have my call with Asia. So I think that if you're building the brand because you want to be the face of it, that's great. But I think a lot of the marketing that we do is trade-driven. It is liquid to lips. And liquid to lips, I can't stress it enough because you do that 10,000 times, you're going to build something called a cult following. So what's your following? It doesn't need to be 100,000 people. It could be 10,000 of the right people. So I think a lot of founders are getting too tied up on these big numbers. And I think a great example is Dom Perignon used to host an event, a thousand person event. Listen, if you invite me to a Dom Perignon event to drink free Dom, I'm going to go to it. How do you find the 20 people that actually go buy the Dom after that? And instead of spending a million dollars on a party, how do you spend 50 grand on a private jet to fly those 20 people to Champagne, France to build an experience so they become your storytellers? And so I think when you come up with marketing, 
How do you build a storyteller? How do you build a consumer to want to tell your story? First, build a story. So stop being so sidetracked on the celebrity influencer and build a genuine story that people are going to want to tell that is abrasive and that people can brag about. I think the one core thing of marketing is people want to always know more than the person next to them. There's nothing like walking to a bar and saying, oh, that whiskey, let me tell you about it. That's hand bottled with Colorado fresh water and here's the process of it. And you get people to brag about it. That to me is marketing. I think that's an amazing insight. And I think we're going to have a lot of listeners who are like, how can we work with Andrew? So given that that will probably happen, how can they work with Andrew? How do you prefer people to reach out to you? It could be via social media, LinkedIn, through my website, or you just find me at any trade show, Brooklyn Bar Convent, Food and Wine, et cetera. But reach out to me via LinkedIn. I am very good at getting back to people because I love the creative ideas that people have. And if nothing else, we're going to build this industry together. So I, I don't find it as competition. I find it as, you know, one tide raises all ships. All right. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Uh, so great to talk with you. Absolutely. Yeah, it was fantastic. Really interesting. Erica Felicity, I really appreciate it. And I hope to uh, link up soon. Thank you so much for having me. Here we are at the end of the episode, the segment that we call Last Call. So Felicity, what are you drinking this week? Well, I stumbled across a drink that I'm super excited about. So I was in Lithuania on the weekend at a wine fair of, of all places. And it was late in the afternoon and somebody brought across what looked like a sparkling wine and I tried it. And it's actually a sparkling tea. It's called Copenhagen sparkling tea. And I didn't know this, but it's been a huge success in Europe. It was started by a sommelier in Copenhagen who was looking for a non-alcoholic alternative and he blended lots of teas in a really clever way and has I think he's fermented it. And so what you get is you get the caffeine, which gives it a little kick, yeah. but the tannins give it structure. So it's the closest thing I've ever had as a real substitute for sparkling wine as opposed to some de-alcoholized sort of not very textured wine. So I actually ordered a case of it. Oh, nice. Yeah. Does it come in a variety of flavors? or The flavors are determined by the teas that they're using. And so I got really interested. And so after that, I tried a whole bunch of sparkling teas and none of them come close to the interest and the complexity of this one. And the difference is a lot of the other sparkling teas use a lot of sugar. Mm. The sugar is just, you know, I'm, I'm a bit, I drink things bone dry. And so the sugar just makes me gag. But this one has struck a really, really nice balance between texture and caffeine and sparkling and the rate of sugar and it's a, it's a genuinely good drink probably not to drink at night or you won't ever get to sleep but right 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 it's a great non-substitute what about you what have you been drinking that's so funny that we're both talking about non-alk this week uh, yeah i did not expect that so have you heard of tapache i have not tell me about it okay so tapache is a fermented pineapple oh drink that is traditional in Mexico. So it's traditionally you know, made in home kitchens or you could get it at street carts and you make it by fermenting pineapple peels and the cores of the pineapple for a couple days with some sugar. And then you add in spices like cinnamon or black pepper. Oh, that sounds lovely. It really is delicious. And so the one that is available in the U.S. market, I noticed it coming onto shelves, store shelves, both wine shops and grocery stores in the last year or so and started buying it and absolutely love this product. It's called De La Calle. And I just recently looked into it because I, I've sort of, you know, kept this as my special evening drink for nights that I don't want to drink. I have
haven't taken this tapache product and kind of said like, oh, I'm going to have it as a midday soda. No, I leave it as something special. And it has this kind of complexity of flavors. They have a lot of different varieties. So like a pineapple spice or like a mango chili or orange tamarind. So it's really pretty delicious and complex. And similarly, like you said, with the sugar, this is only 35 calories Mm. in one serving. So it really is quite low sugar and it's sweetened with agave. So that's one of the things that is just really bothering me about those other grown-up soda brands like Olipop. They use stevia and like that is just such an abhorrent flavor to me. Like I just don't like stevia at all and I can taste it in anything. So this De La Calle that they're tapaches have agave in it. It's just gently sweetened. And so anyway, I looked into the company and was pretty interested to see that it just launched in 2021. And since they launched, and it looks like they kind of bootstrapped it, it's an LA-based company. But since they launched, they were able to get placement in dozens of states because it's a non-alcoholic product. And that's what really struck me about looking at their story. So they recently were able to raise about $7 million in funding to expand both the product line and their retail footprint in the U.S. But already right now, they're in a ton of Whole Foods. They're in more than 2,000 grocery stores and wine and liquor stores. And it just underscored the point to me that operating within the three-tier system is so difficult. There are so many hurdles that you have to get through. I mean, to take a year and a half, two-year-old brand and see them in 30 states and more than 2,000 locations without a ton of funding behind a brand like that is so rare in BevAlk. So it was cool to kind of see this and be like, oh yeah, like, you know, if these hurdles were not in place, this might be the type of growth you could see for a small company. Just picking up on your thing about Stevia, one of the, the things that a lot of people get wrong is the balance of sweetness. I think for non-alcoholic drinks, you actually need some bitterness for some reason to help replace the alcohol. But the sweetness levels are usually what people get horribly wrong. Yeah. But it's interesting. I've discovered quite recently that I can taste the difference between different sweeteners. Now, with something like honey, you'd expect that because it's, it doesn't just have yeah. polymers of sugars. It's also got lots and lots of other things there as well. But because of droughts and inflation, our supermarket a few months ago replaced cane sugar with beet sugar. Oh, wow. I wouldn't have expected any difference because I think chemically sugar is sugar. But actually, it turned out I couldn't stand the taste of beet sugar in my tea. And when I was in the States for the business and drinks launch, I bought a kilo of cane sugar from the local supermarket. So I had... <laughs> I had to explain to people at customs. That was really tough. Oh, my God. I have a pound of powder. Yeah, that's right. When they opened up my suitcase, I was like, oh, this is going to be a difficult conversation, isn't it? Oh, God. That's terrible. But actually, it restored the balance in my tea. The worst thing about it was next time I went up to the supermarket, the cane sugar is back. I didn't have to go through customs help. Oh, get out of here. But the thing was, is that something really unexpected, which is I could tell the difference, even though in chemistry terms, I shouldn't have been able to. So I went online and there's lots of debates about whether beet sugar adds a sort of nutty flavor to things or not. Oh, interesting. I mean, I definitely, I drink agave in almost everything. Like I drink it in my coffee. I drink it in my tea. It just has the most sort of, I don't, there's like a slight grassiness to it that I really like. 
like, and from cane sugar, I find actually that there's like a little bit of like gumminess or stickiness in like the aftertaste. But I also get that from milk, actually. Like I really don't like milk products because afterwards I get this sort of gummy taste in my mouth that I think is from, you know, probably the the sugars in the milk. That's interesting. That's really interesting. I just don't know an alcoholic. I think I told you this anecdote, but I want to repeat it. So I was at the Lithuania Wine Fair, right? And Lithuania is a tiny, tiny wine industry. There's none tinier, but they have a big problem because about five years ago, the green politicians instituted a no advertising alcohol law and it's extremely strict. So you cannot name alcohols publicly. You can't have any images of them. You can't put them on social media. You can't sponsor tastings. It's a real nightmare. So if you want to get into that market, which is growing, you need a non-alcoholic product because what you can do is you can market the hell out of the non-alcoholic product and it brings everything else with it. So Cordenew has had a big success because they put their non-alcoholic sparkling in the same bottle as they put their alcoholic sparklings. So Cordenew has sponsored everything with their non-alc and it's, it's pulled all of the alcoholic sparklings into the market, which I thought was really funny. That's fascinating. I mean, I wonder if brands in the US are really taking advantage of that in the same way, that there's just fewer regulations on how you market non-alcoholic products. I'm curious to know, because I know so many brands are very cautious, especially the big brands, very cautious about how they advertise in the US just to make sure they don't cross any lines and, you know, get big fines or what have you. So I'm curious to know. We'll have to keep a lookout and see. We should, because there are no laws around how you market non-alcoholic products. And the other thing is because you're not allowed to put it on social media, every single member of the wine trade has an Instagram account that is just full of them drinking from wine bottles. <laughs> right. They're not representing a brand. They're representing just themselves as an individual. So smart, smart, smart thinking. All right. So wines need to get a non-alcoholic wine in their portfolio, probably not just for that, but probably for other markets where a sort of neo-prohibitionism is coming. Yes, it's coming. That might be our next season. We'll have to keep you all tuned. That's it for us this week. See you soon, Erica. Bye. Thank you for joining us today on the Business of Drinks. And if you liked what you heard, help us spread the word. Follow and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you tune in. And if there's some aspect of the business that we have not covered, but you want to know more about, let us know. Felicity, how can people reach out? They should email us at podcast at businessofdrinks.com. We'll see you soon.